This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. This episode of American Enough is powered by Sennheiser, the future of audio. Remember the first time you logged on to America Online? There was a little bit of a scratch and a hiss and a loud modem noise, and then, all of a sudden, that first ding, an AIM instant message in your box, weird chat rooms at your disposal, the world's headlines at your fingertips. Or maybe it was the first time that you opened up Gmail and signed into an account and started chatting your friends from across the country or around the world. Or maybe it was the first time that you even opened up Instagram or Tinder and all of a sudden were able to share your life, your story, and create new memories with your friends, your family, your loved ones, and even strangers. All of these elements of our modern technological society have one common denominator, a free and an open internet. The World Wide Web, as originally contemplated when it was first being drummed up in the the halls of the Pentagon's research arm DARPA, have certainly seen a brand new wave of application in the modern day. Everything from facilitating global commerce to new global communications, to even begging the question of how identity is morphed online, to cyberbullying, to data protection, with every opportunity has also come a host of challenges. But the ability to settle in for a night of Netflix and chillin', or for the ability for an individual in sub-Saharan Africa to access documents from around the world through the power of a smartphone, to the ability of an individual in rural Oklahoma that's accessing the internet for the first time to do their homework. All of that is rooted in a concept of the internet being treated fairly and all of us having a democratized sense of access to it. Right now, that question of how we access the internet, lanes of how fast the World Wide Web moves for us, and even tiers of what types of internet content we get are being debated. The very concept of net neutrality has been around for quite some time, but in the past five years, there have been some extraordinary sense of progression. Notably, under President Barack Obama, new rules were established to treat the internet as a common carrier utility, designating the fact that you or I or anyone else ought to be able to access that internet without Comcast or Time Warner or really any other provider being able to set fees for different membership lanes. Now, under President Trump, the FCC has been contemplating new rules that would back away from that vision and actually allow telecom providers and carriers to set their own rules of the roads and ask each of us to pay a different amount for different types of content for the internet. Both, however, claim that the internet is neutral with their views of the world. So how do we actually unpack this concept that's been core not only to American identity, but global identity of how we traffic in information and how we spread the word of our businesses and our values when the internet is actually being debated as to how we govern it in the first place? Joining American Enough is Ambassador Daniel Sepulveda, who led the U.S. State Department's views on internet governance around the world under the last administration and continues to guide telecom policy for the German Marshall Fund and how the U.S., the EU, Russia, and many other actors take a look at examining the internet today. This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer. Often when we talk about American identity or how our moral authority is being shaped under the current context of our current administration and president, we look no further than a Twitter account, a 
Facebook post. The internet has not only been a powerful tool for globalization, facilitating trade, as well as facilitating cultural identity between people who are far apart across the planet, but it's also been an especially powerful tool for adding a voice to someone who once upon a time felt that they didn't have a soapbox. On the other end of that extreme is adding a voice for someone who has the most epic uh, soapbox of all, the Oval Office. The Twitter account for President Donald Trump, for example, is litigated, agonized over, and dissected time and time again, often to this tune of every American citizen waking up to a new slew of those messages coming across your screen with the little blue bird in the corner. But when you examine those mediums, they're more than just messaging posts. They're more than just social media documentations that have likes and comments and dislikes or emojis plastered all over them. They represent something fundamentally different about the modern era of governance and communication. This notion that the internet, the biggest microphone known to man, is really something that belongs to every man, woman, child, individual, and everyone in between. Because it is one key mechanism to add additional voice to any dialogue. With that, though, comes additional responsibilities to think through how exactly that marketplace of ideas where anyone with an internet connection and an idea can now all of a sudden have a business or have a following. Do we need to go about, from a government perspective, regulating it? Or are the companies that are powering the fiber, the optics, the speed, the infrastructure, and the content, can they take care of themselves? Or should we have some other path in between? Today, we're honored to have former Ambassador Danny Sepulveda, uh, the, who served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State and the U.S. Coordinator for International Communications and Information Policy at the U.S. State Department under President Obama, join the podcast American Enough. Danny, thanks for being here. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. And actually, I, I should clarify this at the outset. Did I pronounce the last name correctly? Uh, yes. Okay, perfect, perfect. So I, I wanted to start off by, you know, you've had an incredibly storied career and an amount of um, time working on a range of issues, including labor rights issues, consumer affairs, immigration, um, labor ethics, interstate commerce. Um, and a lot of that is packaged up and rolled up into the most recent role in public service uh, that you had the honor of offering America and people around the world. And that was the a, a voice on behalf of America representing our stakes, our vision, our thoughts on internet policy, information policy. And in fact, uh, some media new, news outlets, uh, including Politico, have even noted you as the principal ambassador for the internet uh, under the prior administration, and even look to you um, in a heroic type form as a, a safeguard on what other countries, um, whether it may be Russia or Brazil or anything in between, may be trying to do with internet governance. From your perspective, does the internet today, based off of all of its power and promise, um, require a, a voice from different countries to represent their interests? Or do you think the commentary on um, the internet's ambassador was more about what the United States was trying to do with the internet at that time? Um, look, no, yeah, the, the internet definitely requires a global conversation. And that global conversation, one of the central points of the Obama administration's view on uh, the international governance of the internet was that it should be 
not simply the voices of government that make decisions about the future of our digital economy and the platform that we call the internet, but that its users, the technology community, the, in the industry that depends on it, academics and civil society all work together to try to solve global challenges. And my primary responsibility was to preserve the internet as a global communications platform and to ensure that it continued to serve as a force for the democratization of both civic participation and commerce. And when it comes to civic participation, particularly, or let's start there, um, there, there's been some profound implications over the past couple of decades, not only by the introduction of the internet as a tool, uh, but but frankly, in the way that laws in the United States get constructed. Um, you know, we had, for example, a public-private uh, entity or corporation known as ICANN that oversaw registration domains of various websites. Um, you've seen transitions um, around the uh, Telecommunications Act, as well as the Millennium Digital Copyright Act, or, or sorry, the, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Um, w from your perspective, uh, for, for any listener that isn't necessarily familiar with the morass of laws that govern the internet, um, what are the most important tools that, at least within the United States, we have to, to think about internet governance? And uh, are they actually useful? Do they actually govern the way you and I use them? Or are they uh, really nascent and still up for rewriting over time? Sure. So the baseline uh, law for governing communications in the United States is the 1934 Communications Act, Federal Communications Act. And it was, it's been amended a number of times, but the, the most significant of those is the 1996 Telecommunications Act, which amended the 34 Act. And the idea was to encourage competition in infrastructure and to ensure that the infrastructure was open to more participants. And layered on top of that was built the internet. Uh, and so when we think about the internet, you have to think about it in a layered context. There is a an underlying uh, agreement, which is, like you said, managed by ICANN, of voluntary protocols that allow for private networks to connect to each other. And that's what creates the system of networks of communications around the world connecting to each other using a common protocol to ensure communications across those networks. The system that manages, that, uh, that it allows any device to communicate to any other device knowing an identifier by which to reach that device, so an address, is managed by the Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers, ICANN, which is a nonprofit, non-governmental organization outside of California. So there are a whole host of, of laws that have been built since the, since the, the construction of the Internet um, that affect how we use that technology. Uh, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act jumps immediately to mind. Uh, the DMCA, as you said, jumps immediately to mind. We also have existing antitrust and consumer protection laws that are superimposed on the Internet. So doing something illegal on the Internet doesn't make it legal. It's still illegal. Right. And you're still bound by law and law enforcement can still find and prosecute you for violating those laws. And so uh, there, there is sort of a, a thought out there that the internet is a lawless space or a wild west 
Um, and that is only partially true. The, what the internet does is it makes it much harder to enforce law, but it does not make law non-existent. And there's, there's a, an additional layer on top of that. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, not only does the United States have its own approach to some of the laws that, that you mentioned, um, but in your role uh, out of the State Department, you also served as the vice chair um, to the OECD and actually engage a number of world summits on information society to the United Nations. Um, tell us a little bit about how a global infrastructure or about how other countries that have leading voices on this issue approach this. Do they have similar mentalities as, as you or I would about wanting to protect some fairness and balance about how the internet is governed? Or is there an ideological division itself when it comes to internet governance around the world? There's, there's some pretty strong ideological divisions. So if you think of it as a spectrum, on the far side would be us, on one far side would be us, which is the most laissez-faire approach to the international governance of the internet. And then on the furthest opposite side would be China and Russia, with the most regulatory and state-centered philosophy of internet governance, both domestically and internationally, of anyone in the world. And then in between is everybody else, right? Um, the most interesting and I think important of which is Europe, which lies much closer to us, but is to but is a is more philosophically state centered and more regulatory than we are. Uh, I would say that at the multilateral table, Europe and the United States always sat on the same side of the table. We would oppose Chinese and Russian proposals to centralize. Uh, control of the internet or to send, or to place the regulation and operations of the critical infrastructure of the internet in the hands of governments. Um, and we would oppose any idea like what one of the things that China, both China and Russia were asking for of the United Nations was international approval of the idea that governments uh, could have the internet function within the four corners of their physical jurisdiction differently than in the rest of the world, and that they should be allowed under the principle of sovereignty to censor content or to control content. And those were all things that, that us in Europe, sitting at the multilateral table, always disagreed with, and we did it together. The, the bilateral relationship between Europe and the United States is much more nuanced and much more complex because um, although it's a margin of difference, not a, not a, a full-scale difference. It's a margin of difference. Our colleagues in Europe do believe that the state has a stronger role to play in the internet marketplace than we in the, in the United States have historically believed. And when it comes to that concept of, of where the U.S. beliefs are born out of, it, it's kind of interesting because in your role, you've actually you know, akin to when many people think of an ambassador, represent the not only the policy interests or ideological interests of the United States in terms of what governance or legal outcomes we want. But you're also representing the identity of how the United States wants to be perceived around the world, the values that it inculcates, as well as its vision around the internet. And within the United States, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it seems that the internet holds a very special place in the heart and imagination of American citizens 
notably because you had everybody from, you know, famously Al Gore on the campaign trail in 2000, touting his role in in the the spawning of the internet. You have our defense research agency at the, out of the Pentagon known as DARPA um, that played a very very vital R and D role in sort of the the node to known infrastructure that undergirds our modern internet. Is it safe to say when we talk about internet philosophy or governance or even values around the world that the U.S. feels like it has an outsized role in in sort of where this all came from and therefore we're we're more entitled or differently entitled about that? Or is that is that sort of a a short-sighted way of, of viewing America's identity when it comes to internet creation? I think that's in part correct and in part incorrect. And the way that it's correct is that we, we feel a special responsibility for the Internet since the Internet was born in the United States. Um, to some degree, we feel like, or at least when I was in office, um, in working with our our multi-stakeholder community, we feel like the Internet is partly America's gift to the world. Uh, we we set it, we essentially set it free and, and, and launched it to the world. And at its best, the internet does enable the exercise of some of the most core values of, of the United States of America, freedom of expression, freedom of association, freedom to engage in commerce, uh, the freedom to, as an individual, to be a part of society without restraint. And so at, at its best, the internet is, is, is really one of the most um, – human enabling uh, technologies ever created in the history of the world. And we believe that, or we have believed historically that a big part of the reason why that is, is because it is a global voluntary network uh, that enables anyone to communicate with anyone else in the world. Yeah, and it's incredible how much that is fueled, as you mentioned, commerce. I mean, now President Obama would even famously say that anyone with the uh, internet connection and a product or an idea is now a global business that could sell just as easily to Boston as their first sale is maybe uh, over to, to Beijing. Uh, right now, the the internet within the United States, though, is going through a, a very, very um, special level of attention, I'd say, where there are more eyeballs on internet governance um, than your average day. Uh, talk to us a little bit about what's been happening at the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, um, particularly in light of what Obama aimed to achieve via the FCC and internet governance versus what's going on right now under the Trump administration's um, uh, acting commissioner leadership in Ajit Pai. Sure. So President Barack Obama and I, I was his uh, his advisor for tech and telecom issues in the United States Senate. When he came to the Senate uh, many now many years ago in 2004, he, he, he started a podcast and his second podcast was about network neutrality. Now it had just, I mean, Tim Wu had coined the phrase network neutrality in 2003, and uh, and he had he also knew uh, Lawrence Lessig, and he so he was familiar with these concepts, right? Uh, and what what the what the network of networks and the many to many communications could enable in terms of really a revolution in civic discourse and democracy. And I, I know, and I feel, I know that he believes that a big part of who he is, who he became was in large part due to due to the internet, the ability to communicate with people without gatekeepers, without having to go through a central broadcaster or a central news 
organization, but to communicate directly with with the people that he wanted to organize and move. And uh, and he believed, and I believe, and I think there's a core community of folks who believe that the fact that the networks are neutral is a big part of why they act as a democratizing force. So with that background, um, after many years, so our first FCC chairman, Julius Janikowski, tried to move uh, protections for network neutrality without declaring the internet or internet service provision a public utility without making it a Title II service. That was found by the courts to be impossible. Uh, that what the courts said was that if you were to tell a carrier that they had to carry all communications neutrally, which is essentially what neutral net neutral networks argue, network neutrality argues, you're calling them a common carrier. They are a carrier that everyone relies on to reach everyone else. Now, all of this seems like common sense to me. Right. It seemed like common sense to Tom Wheeler, who was our subsequent FCC chairman, and he put forward network neutrality regulation based on the classification of internet service provision as a public utility. The telephone and cable companies who provide you with internet service provision spontaneously combusted politically. The far right on the basis of property arguments, the idea that these companies own the wires and therefore they should be free to do with those wires as they see fit, also opposed network neutrality. Uh, much to the surprise of many, uh, President Trump became president of the United States. Ajit Pai, who at the time that Tom Wheeler was chairman, was serving as a minority member of the Federal Communications Commission, becomes chairman of the Federal Communications Commission, and just recently declared, he, he, he declared it all along, but just recently officially declared his intent to fully repeal the network neutrality regulations. And that is where we are today. There will be a vote on whether or not to fully repeal those regulations on December 14th. There are three Republican commissioners. The other two have declared their support for Ajit's position. The two Democrats are opposed, but in a majority committee commission, it is almost a done deal. Done deal. Yes, and the network probably will be repealed in on December 14th. And not to be you know too pedantic, but when you when we talk about neutrality, I mean when I hear that term, I think when many people, whether they follow closely this debate or not, hear that term, um, there it's exactly what it sounds like, right? That there's that there should be a preservation of very neutral interests in terms of access to the internet, lanes and speed to the internet, um, and and frankly that we should you know pay table stakes to have um, that resource at our disposal, but that any sort of tiered structures get away from a new that get away from a neutral position would be inherently unfair. Um, why then is neutrality and net neutrality a word that you know maybe supporters of um, Ajit Pai's proposal also are able to claim? Uh, is neutrality as a word as simple as the way I defined it, or is it a little bit more nuanced? And and where's sort of the spin room action going on between the the quote unquote defenders of the free internet and the quote unquote kind of big telecom interest that we're assuming is really pushing for the current state of play around the new proposed rules. Sure. Uh, let me start by saying that I've known Ajit Pai for 20 years. He, he served in the United States Senate for uh, for then uh, the senator from Kansas, uh, Mr. Brownback. And at that time, I was serving for, for, for Barbara Boxer. 
I have an immense amount of respect for Ajit. I think he's a, a, a strong public servant. I've disagreed with him for 20 years on sure. multiple sure. areas of public policy, but but he's a good human being. Uh, and I think that he he is he has committed himself to service, much as I've committed myself to service. And and he has a philosophy, right? So on Absolutely. his side of the aisle, they don't they don't claim to support. I don't even think that Ajit would argue that he claims to support neutrality of networks. He they okay. believe that there are forms of discrimination at your home that in the marketplace would work well to benefit consumers and providers of services. So if you look at all, all other historic, really any marketplace network, it's discriminatory. So cable is discriminatory. You don't get to choose your package of cable channels. You don't get to choose uh, which, which channels go in what, or even the price, right? I mean, at the end of the day, the, the whatever HBO charges Comcast to deliver to your house or whatever Comcast charges another channel to be carried on a Comcast, that's, that's between them. You have no play in it, right? right? So unlike the internet, so on the internet, you woke up this morning, you turned on your internet, and you decided to come to, to, to a website where you and I, in this case Skype, could talk to each other. I did the same thing. We both paid to enter the internet. After we paid to enter the internet, what we did with our internet connection was up to you and me individually. Mm -hmm. Neither Comcast, who serves me, or whoever serves you, played a role in us deciding to use Skype or to use FaceTime or to use chat or to use whatever else we wanted to use. In a non-neutral world, Comcast or your edge provider could say, look, it'll be cheaper for you because I've worked something out with Skype for both of you to use Skype, right? And what Ajit says and what his side of the aisle says is great, no big deal. You, the two users end up getting a great product here, in this case, Skype. My concern is that in that case, the, the provider to your house is choosing Skype as the, as the application of choice for the distribution of this type of communication, which is not how the internet has worked ever. It is not how the internet should work. The democratizing force of the internet is that you are not favored by the carrier to whom you are speaking or disfavored by them. Right. And it goes beyond commerce, right? I mean, you could easily apply this to opinions, philosophy. Uh, so the Wall Street Journal is not neutral. They carry an opinion. The, the New York Times opinion page is not neutral. It carries an opinion. So you could easily see a scenario in which a broadband service provider has an opinion and uses its power in the marketplace to exercise authority over that opinion. That's a real problem. Absolutely. And uh, I, I guess I'm curious, you know, it's someone that, that, as we were mentioning earlier, represented not only the values of America as an ambassador and deputy assistant secretary overseas, um, but also had to, you know, stake out a position along our preferential lines of how we wanted the internet to be governed. What would this mean for the modern way in which the representatives of the United States now talk to those UN bodies about their views on the internet. Is this does this mean that because we, um, you know, go this direction or it's proposed to go this direction under um, the proposal under Commissioner Pai that the that we now 
as the United States would also want to advocate for this similar kind of uh, market structured or tier structured approach in other countries? Or is this something in which we could pursue the, the global dialogue that we had all along that you had pursued under the prior administration and that we will continue to pursue in future administrations in one track and our own internet governance standards may per go down the lane on another track? I'm just trying to figure out how do you reconcile those two worldviews? You know, I don't. I don't know how the administration's going to do it. It was. It was a. It was a benefit to me, and an asset to me to be able to go to the world and say, we are not using the size of our market, uh, and the internet subscribers in our market to favor or disfavor any specific content. So if you think about it, Skype was originally born in Estonia. I think it wasn't an American. That's right. That's right. Um, and without neutral networks, uh, if, if you decide, and, and in China, the networks aren't neutral. In China, the networks are not allowed to carry Facebook, right? In, in, in China, the networks are not allowed to carry Twitter. So if you think about networks that aren't neutral, but instead you're going to weaponize the network, either for commercial or political purposes, it would be very hard to go in and say, well, that's not okay, because in the United States, what we've said is that the networks aren't governed by uh, by the United States of America. We we don't govern their whether or not they can discriminate against content and speech. Hmm. Now, again, like I don't want to exaggerate this argument because it, I think that a G or whoever is going to represent the United States abroad under this administration can go forward and say, look, under our commercial system. Our companies are not incentivized to to discourage against any content or discourage against any content, and they don't in practice. Therefore, you know that that doesn't mean that we have to agree with your ability to to dis, to do bad things on the internet. But it, I think it does help that we were proactively arguing that people in their interaction over the internet should be free to go and do as they please on the network, obviously right. within bounds, right? Like terrorists of the internet or child pornography. But as a general principle, we don't, we aren't leveraging networks against, against people we don't like or ideas we don't like. Yeah. And, and that, that strikes me as a particularly scary premise. Um, Again, as you said, out of an abundance of respect to the, the current FCC commissioner, and of course, you know, this current administration being entitled to its own process. But it, it strikes me as a little bit nerve wracking because you have a philosophy that deems it okay for carriers to assess, you know, who can say what, when, and at what speed and at what level of access at the same time that you have an administration that has been, you know, less than ideal in the way that they uh, treat the concept of free expression fairly uh, under the bully pulpit of this Oval Office. For example, you have you know a president condoning uh, a certain level of hate speech offered in uh, Charlottesville all the way to attacks on the First Amendment by criticizing uh, news outlets for, for being fake or for being um, incorrect simply because they issue an opinion or analysis that isn't favorable upon certain administration actions. Do you think that, you know, separate from what the 
FCC's uh, independent rulemaking process will involve. Uh, how do you think that this concept of lanes in an infrastructure of the internet, an instrument of freedom of expression, um, ladders up to uh, a bully pulpit that's been used to denounce expression by certain groups under this current kind of volatile political climate? Well, we're, we're blessed in the United States to not have state-owned media. Right. So if if the if our private networks were state owned or if our media were state owned, it would be a dramatically bigger problem. Um, I think that the biggest challenge with what the administration, the president is arguing is essentially not just that you can't believe not just that that mainstream media is telling you a lie, but that you can't really believe anything. And when you can't believe anything on what do we base our public debate? On what do we, where does the rule of reason and logic and facts enable that, which is what historically we've tried to use as the basis for our deliberation? What role does that play? And does it even matter anymore? And um, and I think that that's deeply destructive to to our democracy and in wholly inconsistent with where our founders were on the role of ideas and 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 press in, in our society, uh, and is really, is really, is really, really dangerous. Absolutely. Particularly when you, you view that the danger of stifling expression in any way, um, or chilling it, frankly, uh, through the lens of the internet, you've seen how other countries and other regimes have even stifled the ability to access certain websites or access whole aspects of the internet in general. So it kind of, you know, not that we need to pay that melodramatic state-owned media or, you know, Twitter is now banned in the U.S. type of picture, um, but it does sort of evoke images of that in a in a troubling way and in, in the same way that we might look at internet use in a country like China or Russia. Absolutely. And look, look, technology is not um, is neither moral nor immoral. Its use is moral or immoral. And if you look at how authoritarian states are, are weaponizing technology. So in China, they're creating like a Yelp like rating system for citizens to rate other citizens on how patriotic they are. Now, if you think about the Orwellian nature of something like that, it's deeply, deeply disturbing. Definitely. And I guess, you know, it harkens back to the, the namesake of, of uh, this own podcast in which we talk about American identity in terms of who measures up to be American enough, particularly when you have rhetoric that is so divisive against, you know, immigrant populations or transgender populations. Um, you know, when it comes to that identity, uh, nothing is more core to how that identity is shaped or perceived than when an ambassador or a dignitary or frankly even a musician represents how America looks like uh, overseas. And we, you know, we talked about your your work wearing that hat as an ambassador. Uh, but once upon a time, the uh, Nancy Scola in Politico magazine actually even dubbed you as uh, the core ambassadorial voice that was aiming to make sure that that Russia uh, didn't meddle with our internet governance. I think uh, you know, given the particularly sensitive nature of 
of Russia and inquiries around their involvement under this administration. I don't really want to fixate on that, but we've definitely seen a rising chorus of Russia's voice um, in in the modern geopolitical landscape in a way I think that we haven't either witnessed or, or at least paid as much attention to in, in recent political history after the Cold War. Um, what is, from your perspective, Russia's views on the way that American identity is being shaped right now, and in particular, given that political commentary, how is it viewed vis-a-vis internet internet governance? Well, look, uh, Russia was very sensitive to our criticisms of it as using the internet and trying to manipulate technology for authoritarian ends, and and we did that explicitly. Uh, opposing its calls for the ability of any country to control information within the four corners of its country as a violation of internationally agreed upon human rights. And it, it hurts our ability to make that argument when our own president argues that, uh, you know, CNN around the world is, is, showing, is showing the world lies, right? Yeah. Or, or when he argues that the, the media is is fake media. Right. Those are traditionally authoritarian arguments about a free press. Absolutely. And they're deeply disheartening when an, our own president makes them. And by the way, that's that's wholly – I, I don't paint all my Republican colleagues with that brush. That's wholly inconsistent with where George Bush was, where Ronald Reagan was. On Ronald Reagan was a broadcaster. He was a member of the press at one point. The The – the idea – this is something wholly new in our politics, uh, in who we are as a country, and we very quickly seem to normalize it. And it's not normal. It's not okay. And it's not even American. When, when we talk about what does it mean to be – what is an American identity? What does it mean to be an American? At, at its very, very root is the concept of freedom, the concept of Freedom of expression, freedom of association, freedom of the press, freedom from the state to be told how to think or what to think or what to do, who to associate with. I mean, my, like, I, like I was telling you, my family's originally from Chile, and we left Chile in 1980 when there was still a dictatorship. For, for many people who are immigrants in the United States uh, and become Americans, like my parents— um, I was actually born here while my father was studying, but but my parents are immigrants, and I've I've known many immigrants. You appreciate and love the idea of America that much more because it is an idea, because it's a commitment to principles and ideals. It isn't a birthright. Well, it is a birthright if you're born a citizen here, but it isn't it isn't um, tied to your skin, your color, your race, your religion. It, anyone in the world could become American if they wished. And we believe by coming here and by being a part of our society, obviously by obeying our laws, that the there is no making America great again by returning to a homogenous or cultural or racial power structure. Right. Or re- or retreating from the world cha- trade. Sorry, world stage. Right. Or disrespecting the rest of the world. Or 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 mocking other people, or or claiming that we are because we are America, um, going to act only in our interests, and that our interests are the supreme interests of the world. Those those are all not just wrong 
arguments. They are they are both strategically they're strategically and tactically wrong. They are also just wrong as a matter of right and wrong. Uh, when you engage in a negotiation at the multilateral level, it isn't it isn't a commercial transaction. You're trying to solve a problem together. Engaging in a multilateral conversation on climate change is not a game. It's not a game where I end up winning and you end up losing. Either we all win or we all lose. There's no, there's no, I get the biggest building in New York argument. Right. It's, it's a collaborative process. It's a stakeholder process. Right. Um, in which you're all stakeholders. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. And actually you mentioned something really interesting there because there's not only this concept of of who Americans are by you know working hard doing the right thing kind of investing in the grit and resilience and optimism and entrepreneurship that has defined the story of this country for decades but you also mentioned that attitude vis-a-vis -vis the world stage uh, you know you came uh, from South America I, I, my, I myself am the son of immigrant parents there's a moment in time in which uh, this country is both uniquely defined by stories like yours or stories like mine. I mean, it's not in the same vein that we we hear the story of you know the son of a steel mill worker that becomes the speaker of the house in the case of John Boehner, or in the same vein that we hear the story of you know the skinny kid with a funny name, um, the first black president, but you know assuming a role in the Oval Office. In the in this vein that those are all inspired stories that are now core to our American legacy and identity. So are stories like yours. You know the son of um, parents that were born and raised you in Chile, you come up to the United States, and then all of a sudden you are representing our, you know, internet, commerce, telecommunications vision to the rest of the world. And that identity is a hell of a thing and, and really should be applauded. But we're also at a time where, you know, stepping away from just the, the internet conversation in which many might say the United States is in a posture of retreat, in which uh, when you hear uh, banners like America First, it means that we look inwards and we don't necessarily want to celebrate stories like yours or like Barack Obama's or, frankly, um, even John Boehner's if that son of the steel mill worker had come from you know, a set of parents outside this country. So as someone who not only has that background and had the journey that you had with your family, but who also represented America on the world stage, uh, you know, what is the, the opportunity or the challenge that we risk or that we can confront uh, when you do take that posture when it comes to global trade or just foreign policy in general, something that kind of rocks yourself back on your heels a little bit? Because for as many, of, many individuals as you or I who might say that that's dangerous and problematic, there are just as many uh, individuals out there, in fact, perhaps 63 million Americans who, who voted for this president who would say that that's okay and that's a perfectly rational uh, public policy and public posture. And I'm wondering what your views are, particularly in the way the world is going to perceive these types of actions. You know, um, there's, there's, you know, a personal, a professional, a political way to look at this from from a political perspective, the rest of the world uh, is now in a position where they can't really rely on the word of the United States of America. When we make agreements, when when we establish, for example, a free trade agreement with whether it be with Korea or with Mexico and Canada, that's not just the word of that particular president at that particular time. 
That is the word of the United States of America. We have agreed to these terms and conditions, and we have agreed to this process by which to work out disputes, and we have agreed by, by this process to, to, uh, to revisit agreements when necessary. Multilaterally, we, we agree to, to uh, engage the United Nations and work on climate together. The, the repeal of agreements made as a nation affect the ability of the world to say whether or not they should engage in peaceful discourse and negotiation with us, which places us at an it places the world at an incredible position of danger. So, and so if you can take an, a current example, you can take an example like North Korea. So what we would in an ideal situation have is the North Korean government thinking to itself, all right, we need to engage in a negotiation here with the most powerful country in the world. And their word is good. We can come to some agreement by which they get what they want, which is us not building nuclear weapons. And we get what we want with some degree of stability and, and freedom from, from aggression for, for whatever period of time. How do you how do you construct a negotiating table in that scenario if what they think is that our word is not good? What what realm of negotiation is possible when you go out to the world and say we really don't care about your interests? We're going to place American interests first. Obviously, every American president in the history of the United States has placed American interests first from their perspective. It's your first responsibility to represent the United States of America. But serving America's interests first does not mean having to put everybody else's interests aside. And in fact, you serve our national interests best when the rest of the world views you as an admirable nation, as someone you can respect and honor. And I would very, very much challenge the concept that the world right now looks at our administration and says, yes, this is an administration that we can hold up as a city on a hill, as, a, as an emblem for good governance honor, respect, and engagement. That's not happening. And that places our people at real risk in every sense, economically, physically, national security, in, in every sense. You're absolutely right. And and even if individuals want to, you know, take a a pocketbook approach, you know, an economic lens and evaluate this as opposed to, you know, perhaps the, the more easily divisive approach of, of culture and community, um, you can even take a look no further than several of, you know, modern uh, internet giants and success stories or corporations that were either founded by immigrants um, within the United States and have created, you know, thousands of jobs or are now currently run by immigrants or children of immigrants. It really does have a capacity to invest back in the well-being of America if you can have a diversity of thought and that augments our economic competitiveness or, or inventive spirit. That's true. But but I, I would hesitate a note of caution. I, I believe in democracy. Um, I don't believe that 63 million Americans are either malicious or ignorant or or bad in any way, shape or form. I Absolutely. I think that one of the things that we have to think about seriously is, is what happened, right? I mean, I guess Hillary wrote a book about that, but <laughs> I, I take my I take right. my own view of that. And and the two most um, important books that I think I've read in the in the last few years is is Ta-Nehisi Coates' uh, "We Were Eight Years in Power," as well as, as "Between the World and Me," and then J.D. Vance's book Hill, "Hillbilly Elegy," Elegy right? Yeah. And, and the reason why, and I, I don't equate J.D. Vance with, with Ta-Nehisi Coates. Ta-Nehisi Coates is an intellectual. J.D. Vance is a great storyteller and a, and a very smart guy. But Ta-Nehisi Coates is on a whole other level. But nonetheless, they're, what they're talking about 
are two communities that we as a political uh, elite have not come to understand well. J.D. Vance is talking about a poor white working class community and what has happened to them throughout the Appalachia region. Tanahisi Coates is talking about the black experience writ large, but largely about where he comes from originally out of Baltimore and the inner city and what that experience has meant for, for black people in the United States as well, going all the way back to slavery. So as we look at these two communities and we think about, well, then on a, on a higher level that we're talking about, what has globalization meant to them? What has the rise of technology meant to them? What has the dramatic increase in wealth of the United States meant to them? And the fact of the matter is, for many, many of them, the answer is not much, right? And we have to do a much, much better job of democratizing uh, opportunity and wealth and enabling social mobility in order to retain the American ideal and to make the American promise true. And we're not doing that today. What happened with the tax bill, if it goes forward as it was drafted last night, will make things worse. And what's happening with technology and innovation will make things even worse. And I don't think that we've come to terms with that or articulating it or understanding it in a, in a manner that, that people really need to. Ambassador Daniel Sepulveda served as an ambassador in the Obama administration and as a top official at the State Department representing America's voice on internet communications and technology policy. Uh, when we return, we'll talk to Ambassador Sepulveda a little bit about what opportunities are on the horizon to create br bridges through technology. Check out Sennheiser's latest Bluetooth in-ear headphones, the HD1 Free. Premium materials and flawless craftsmanship combined with stunning Sennheiser sound all in one small and wireless package. And we're not kidding, this makes a great gift. Learn more at Sennheiser.com. And our listeners can get a 25% discount with the code MouthMediaSen at checkout. That's MouthMedia, S-E-N-N. -N. So, so, Danny, you actually represent a really, really good point, which is that um, we, in the same way that we can, you know, examine, analyze, and, and um, you know, agonize, frankly, over America's position on the world stage, we really, really ought to look inward about, you know, not only opportunities, but a chance to create bridges uh, between our own fellow countrymen and women. Um, certainly, the outcome of the last election wasn't that. Uh, we as one party versus another needs to quickly mobilize for 2018 or 2020 and beyond. That might be one way to view it. But the other element is something that you spoke to um, poignantly, which is that we need to identify where there are bridges or gaps uh, between states, communities, frankly, just straight up individuals to identify what is bothering them, what's on their minds, and how we can actually create bridges between these communities and create more of an equality of opportunity for all of America. Um, while, while we've discussed a number of tech challenges and you know evolutions to the telecommunications landscape, one thing that kind of undergirds the area of opportunity, but at the same point, an area of exacerbation and equality um, is technology. We celebrate it immensely because it has the ability for 
you and I to chat, you know, hundreds of thousands of miles apart, um, and then have that that audio and that that conversation broadcast to people around the world. Um, assuming anyone uh, beyond my mom is actually listening to this, but you know, I I, I think that. Technology, while it has this incredible opportunity, it's also being seen in this day and age or painted um, as potentially a problem. Either it's unruly, or you know, it's not regulated, or they—it's really only advancing the interest of a few um, at the behest of, of the many. Uh, can you talk about kind of from a more positive outlook where the opportunities? tech presents within the United States to actually build roads uh, between one another? Um, or if those opportunities haven't been realized yet, um, should we be shying away from technology? Or is there another means to kind of create that um, area of, of economic growth and, and advancement um, if we start to really look inwards and focus on where there are gaps between accessing those tools? Sure. I, I think we need to do, before we set off on this course, you need to to differentiate between technology per se and technology companies, right? Right. Because technology, like I said, is is amoral. It's neither neither good nor bad. It's how people use technology to effectuate outcomes that is either good or bad. And then company behavior, there are great companies within the tech sector and some companies that I, I personally don't think behave particularly well in the marketplace. So I, I think one of the challenges politically is that we've gone from, in a very short amount of time, and I'm not exactly sure how it happened, I think Russia played part of it, but we've gone from romanticizing technology to villainizing technology, and neither is true. Absolutely. There's 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 a, a middle way here. Um, I think the people who are really doing some interesting thinking and talking about this is Steve Case with his Rise of the Rest project, right. and Ross Baird, who wrote a book called Innovation Blind Spots. And Steve notably, for, for our listeners, Steve notably traveled uh, the country over the past year and a half, two years, um, to talk about how companies of all stripes and technologists can actually look to you know what we normally consider flyover states to make investments or employment opportunities in that part in, in the parts of the country that aren't just the coasts. Right, right, exactly. And what Ross Baird calls those places is blind spots that the venture capital community and the technology community. For cultural reasons, geography, for a wide variety of reasons, is blind to opportunity in those areas that they don't see. Um, and part of the role of public policy is to encourage uh, people to see opportunity in those places and make investments in those areas. And if that happens, you can see a resurgence using technology, smart cities, um, you know, advanced manufacturing capabilities, the ability of a small business to produce on a wide scale using technology, not just the internet, but manufacturing production mechanisms um, and customer relationship management tools, met multiple ways to create wealth, not just at, at a huge scale for a company like Google, but at a small scale that becomes bigger for like a company like Shinola out of Detroit or, you know, any number of other companies. Sure. So... I, what I think we're seeing to some degree is a natural evolution, both of politics and economics, where uh, industry, the tech industry and the tech sector in particular, are realizing that there's a much bigger world out there than than just Silicon Valley, New York and Massachusetts, or or even the the centers of wealth around the world, but that there are that there's this base of the pyramid of billions of people who require services and goods as well. And that there's money to be made in servicing them. And technology can play a role in doing that. 
Um, but what concerns me is that all of this has to hit up against the capacity and ability of people on the ground in those places we are blind to, being able to use new technologies and being able to make the most of that opportunity because, with the skills that they need to acquire because they don't have them today, right? Uh, the McKinsey Institute uh, just came out with a report about what automation, robotics, and artificial intelligence are going to do to work and the displacement of jobs. Um, and they're very bullish on technology. I'm very bullish on technology. But what we have to recognize is that it is going to displace a large number of people. And what they say is that you're going to need a Marshall Plan of investment in human capacity in order to make use and create new wealth and new work out of these new technologies. And what I worry about is that is right now we're headed towards a fiscal cliff because of our entitlement programs and the amount of revenue we have coming in. And if we do need to make a Marshall Plan style investment in our workforce or in our infrastructure or in our people, the money's not going to be there. And that's that's going to be a real problem uh, because our needs are not at the, today. Our needs are not at the top. The, the wealthiest companies in the world are not are not faced with a capital shortage. Uh, our interest rates are not so high that it's hard to get money. Money is basically free. That the the challenge right now is one the distribution of opportunity and wealth, and two the distribution of capacity and skills necessary to make the most of the modern economy. And that requires, and I, I think that that's what President Obama was trying to do through making sure that everyone had health care in the country, through making sure that we were investing in our education and our infrastructure. That you can be open, you can embrace globalization, you can embrace technology, but it requires a communal commitment to those who are either left behind or set aside to bring them into the fold so that they too can benefit from from the modern economy. That's in, yeah, that's incredibly well put because as you alluded to, um, a lot of you know takeaway technology companies for a second as you as you bifurcated, but a lot of technology is begging the question of what will that future of work look like? You know, will work, for example, get increasingly short term? Will automation create um, offsets or will it create new opportunities? But regardless of, you know, what that crystal ball reveals, uh, one thing that has to undergird a, a really important investment is a skills based level of thinking. Um, and, you know, whether those are apprenticeship programs that the Department of Labor, you know, spearheaded as a, as a renaissance way for learning under President Obama and, you know, fortunately have been has been continued under President Trump or STEM investments or conversations around later stage continuous education um, or even, you know, broader, more grandiose ideas that we've seen surfaced out there like attacks on robotics or universal basic income. All of these issues need to really be examined critically and closely. Um, but I but I feel and, and please correct me if this is too pessimistic of a view. I worry that, you know, when we take a look at our current Department of Education, we're not seeing rigorous investments in that direction. Um, even the, the tax bill, as you mentioned, that passed out of the Senate last night cuts away with a pretty standard deduction for school teachers to be able to reimburse elements of getting school supplies. Um, yeah, so I guess, you know, when it comes to investments on the skills side, uh, where do we do we need to be focusing our attention? Yeah, look, this is a problem uh, that isn't a four-year problem, and it's not a 
one program challenge like making computer science mandatory in high schools. It's a multi-generation, it's a generational challenge. This is going from the agricultural age to the industrial age. We're going from the industrial age to the information age. Absolutely. And it'll happen so rapidly that it will require a degree of communal investment that I don't think people are sufficiently grappling with. So while the while our administration had great ideas and great initiatives, we didn't have the resources to to take those initiatives and, and programs to scale. And our current politics is isn't allowing for that. What what I would say is you, before you said will modern technology or or all these these new mechanisms create more wealth, less wealth, more jobs, less jobs? Uh, I think it'll be much like globalization, much like trade, net net, it'll be great. It'll be a benefit for as a whole for everyone. But much like globalization and trade, it won't be geographically and demographically well distributed. And as a result, if we don't adjust for that or help people to deal with and adjust to those circumstances and to those challenges, we will have a similar populist revolt against technology that we have had against trade. And both are bad. You cannot stop ideas from occurring. You don't want to stop ideas from occurring. You don't want to stop innovation. In fact, if it were me, we would be investing in artificial intelligence. We would be investing in, in our underlying broadband networks to ensure that everyone, and particularly universities, schools, kids, had access to the world's fastest uh, infrastructure network in the world. We're not doing that. We're not doing those things. Um, and, and I think that that's in large part because we our politics um, – doesn't isn't designed and and it's partly a problem of campaign finance it's partly a problem of elites talking to elites to serve the to serve everyone it's it's designed uh for you to serve the people you know and at the elite level we all know each other um and we're all aware of our of our lives and our challenges and it doesn't it looks great right but if you read these stories if you read the tanahisi coats of the world if you read the jd vances of the world and, and I mean, and I'm talking about in the most privileged country in the world, there are deep pockets of of disadvantage and deep pockets of lack of opportunity. Uh, and, and as a function of historic structural policymaking and, and just a bunch of different reasons. And so what what's happening that is wonderful and great can and should be used to ameliorate what have been historic challenges that are getting worse. We are becoming less socially mobile. We are becoming more unequal in terms of opportunity. In the United States, birth should never be destiny, and it's becoming destiny, and that's a real problem. And for for you know that whole landscape of challenges, um, you know there is, as you said, still a a sense of optimism that's core to American identity, as as you mentioned, and as you know Reagan Lee even famously framed it, that shining city, that shining beacon on a hill. Um, it's why your parents come. It's why my parents came. It's why your parents came. It's absolutely. why President Obama's parents came. It's it's why somebody risks their life trying to cross a desert in the middle of nowhere on our border with Mexico to be a dishwasher. It's that kind of that kind of optimism, that kind of hope. I mean, that's beyond me. I, I've lived too privileged a life to imagine what it would be like to think, all right, I'm going to risk my life to cross a desert so that my kid mm -hmm. can someday go to an American school. Right. That's just amazing. But but it, absolutely, it's incredibly amazing. But you also, you know, to your point, um, you you are 
a, 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 not only an ambassador, but someone who has spent life dedicated to public service. Um, you, you, you're a father yourself. You're, you're a son. Um, what do you actually say to those uh, young individuals who may be looking at this landscape and you know taking stock of a lot of the challenges that we discussed economically um, on this podcast? But but you know trying to motivate them to have that sense that public service is still a a valuable course of action or that optimism is still core to to how we we see ourselves as Americans um, given all of these challenges you know if you had a message for for your children or, or other children um, to, to kind of have a sense of uh, that there is a that bright city um, that continues to shine what would that message be well look I, I've traveled the world and and um... I've seen how other people live and the opportunities and challenges that they face. And you, you, we, my children still live in the greatest nation on earth with the greatest opportunity on earth. And to make the most of that opportunity uh, is going to require probably more of my children than they required of me. And certainly for, for kids of the middle class and kids of the working class, it's going to require a lot more of them. Than it required of their parents, or even, and then dramatically more so than of, of their parents' as parents, and that's because we are no longer uh, economically separated from the world. We don't. We are playing on a on a field that is dramatically more challenging than it ever has been. So, uh, so to some degree, my it isn't advice. It's you have no choice but to work harder. Things. Either you probably want to or think you should have to. Um, but if you do, the world of opportunity that is available to you in the United States is still the, the most remarkable in the world. And we should be able to say that to every child who was born in America today. We can't. We could, through good governance, say that. And hopefully over time we will be able to say that. Uh, but again, I think that the, the root the American ideal, which we still haven't reached, the the American promise, which we are still trying to fulfill, is the is the the greatest structural presentation of how a nation should be governed and of what a nation should aspire to ever presented in the world. That we are all created equal, that we are all endowed with the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that birth is not destiny. That you can be born in Hawaii to a black man from Africa and a white woman from Kansas and become president of the United States. Not just because it's a statistical anomaly or because you are the most exceptionally talented human being on earth, but because you work extremely hard and get to a position of service where you want to be a part of something larger than yourself. Uh, for me, uh, having, I, I, the, the reason I went into service was because I admired people who did, who perform service. And I would hope that uh, as we move forward, I know that there are still an, an immense amount of, of admirable public servants, both in my party and in the Republican Party, who will continue to inspire young people uh, to serve as well. And, and service is a calling. It's much like uh, it's much like faith. Like if you hear it, you almost have no choice but to follow it. And I and I hope that the kids hear it. Ambassador Sepulveda, thank you so much for being here. Uh, I, I think that your points are spot on. That you know being. American is is frankly American enough, but but honoring that identity of being American is is working hard and investing in the community around you. Um, we're a grateful country for your service and a lot of that investment, and we really really appreciate you joining the podcast today.
You know, before we close out, I think one of the things that, that I, I feel like we didn't talk about and I need to say is that being American is American enough, but there are actually people here today who are not American that are American enough. These kids, uh, particularly the Dreamers, but there are a whole host of other uh, undocumented immigrants living in the United States whose core commitment to the very values that make us Americans are as strong or stronger than any of ours. And that we would be stronger as a nation by fully embracing them and making them Americans on paper because they are in their hearts. And I think that uh, that we shouldn't close a conversation without without mentioning them. No, that, that I'm really, really glad that you brought that up. I mean, for for those that um, have followed this conversation or maybe those that are even new to it, um, as the ambassador points out, the, the concept that um, American opportunity could be closed off to somebody just because they came here as a child or what we you know notably call as dreamers um, or even those that, that came at different points in life um, would seem to undercut the very words etched into the Statue of Liberty um, and kind of undercut the ethos of what we've stood for for so long. Um, certainly that embracing of, of immigrants and, and that understanding that our identity is a tapestry of other perspectives and other identities is what has uh, fortunately given us you know, some of our strongest leaders and even given us the chance to, to have you um, at the helm of our service representing the voice of, of information on the global stage. So I appreciate you pointing that out. And, and I guess maybe to, to, to that point in wrapping up, I mean, what, what do you see when you think of American identity what do you feel makes you uniquely American? It's uh, by the grace of God and incredibly courageous parents that I was brought to the United States and had the opportunity to grow up and be here. But but at, at its core, again, I go I go back to the first principle, which is the embrace of the underlying constitutional foundations of our of our nation and our commitment as individuals to help fulfill that promise. And I'm committed to that. And I know my I know the people I've worked for have been committed to that. And I would also note with hope and, and I, and I believe it with my entire heart that there are many, many, many people on the other side of the aisle, just as committed to it as I am. An incredibly helpful and important point to, to recommend that we are all in this together and that, you know, there are no red Americans or blue Americans. There are simply, you know, people all in this civic experiment together trying to make and build a more perfect union uh, Danny, thank you so much again for being here today. We appreciate it. Be well. This has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network, copyright 2017. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. Theme music by Chris Thomas. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts, callers, and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of this show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.